the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Uh, yes, indeedy, and he's here to say good afternoon to you. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Lifeline for the 12th day of September. Can you believe it? Felt like we just said Happy Memorial Day a few weeks ago. Time flies, yes, indeed. Time flies, yes, it does. And uh, hopefully we'll help the time of your commute today fly as well with uh, some good, compelling conversation. A little bit later on, we're going to talk about the state of socialized medicine in America today. What's happened to all the talk about Medicare, insurance reform, health care reform, Obamacare, For the longest time, of course, Republicans had talked about reforming this and getting it all straightened out. Now, all that's just kind of quietly gone away. Oh, they did pass reform last year that removed the the, um, compelling requirement. But aside from that, not much really has happened. And yet, talks, of course, about um, moving towards a so-called one-payer or socialized medicine. But is that really all that it's cracked up to be? A leading physician is going to join us tonight to talk about just that very issue. Also, speaking of Congress not moving all that fast, we're going to talk in a moment about the issue of reform related to food stamps in America. Unbelievably, post-2008-2009 economic decline, the spike in the use of food stamps in America, unbelievable. Almost 50 million people. While we've seen a steady decline over recent years, it's nowhere near pre-2008 levels. We'll talk about reasons why when Christina Rasmussen joins us in just a moment. But first, a quick update. We turn our hearts and minds toward what's been going on on the East Coast. The latest advisory indicating that Hurricane Florence will hit somewhere between Wilmington, North Carolina, and Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, as John Clark reports. The latest advisory on Hurricane Florence shows the storm relentlessly heading somewhere between Wilmington, North Carolina, and Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, then moving southwest, bringing heavy rain and wind far inland, at least through the weekend. Officials in the affected areas continue telling residents that it's imperative to leave, some calling this the storm of a lifetime. In Raleigh, John Clark, NBC News Radio. And certainly on the heels of experiences like Sandy and Katrina, it raises concerns for everyone. Another issue raising some concern today is the release of a Department of Homeland Security document that's raising questions about FEMA 
and the president siphoning money from FEMA to fund ICE arrests. A Homeland Security document made the details available today, indicating the reallocation of nearly $10 million in public funds from FEMA programs aimed at preparation, response, and recovery associated with hurricanes and funneled the money away from disaster relief efforts and into border patrol efforts. Whether or not that's going to be yet another problem as the uh, threat of Hurricane Florence barrels down upon the East Coast. Well, time on that will certainly tell. And throughout this evening, if any new information concerning the progress of Hurricane Florence comes into the KFAX newsroom, we'll be sure to keep you posted. It was under the administration of then-President Bill Clinton that the first serious efforts um, in recent times focused on welfare and food stamp reform. Of course, you go back to the days of Ronald Reagan when the first real big concerted effort toward addressing this issue had happened since the foundation of so-called food stamps took place in the 1960s. And while the food stamp program has been helpful to many, unfortunately, many others argue that it becomes a program upon which people become almost perennially dependent. Witness, for example, the fact that in January of 2008, uh, just a scant few months prior to the um, big recession of that period, approximately 27 million Americans were recipients of food stamps. That number, most shockingly, had nearly doubled to 48 million by its peak of November of 2012. And while, as of one of the most recent reports, May of this year, the number had dropped to 39 million, it still seems to be extremely high, high in relationship to the 2008 peak, high in relationship to unemployment numbers. To give it some insights as to where this whole issue of so-called food stamp reform remains in Congress, we're joined now by Christina Rasmussen, Vice President of Federal Affairs at the Foundation for Government Accountability. And Christina, great to have you with us. And I guess at the end of the day, we say, well, a lot of people, there's a lot of uh, uh, graft taking place and manipulation going on. People take advantage of the food stamp program. But yet, at the end of the day, it really does come down to government accountability, doesn't it? Absolutely. And we're talking about a federal program that spends a lot of money, and it's taxpayer dollars. And when the government spends taxpayer dollars, we want to know that it's going to where it's truly needed. And that's just not the case with the food stamp program. It's become something different, and it needs to be fixed. Let's talk about efforts toward fixing it. You know, certainly in times when people are unemployed or severely underemployed, and it's, do I pay the medical bills, do I pay the rent, or do I buy food and put food on the table? When people have to make those kinds of painful decisions, certainly that kind of um, uh, safety net, I think, is important. And I think that most taxpayers, most Americans would say, sure, I don't mind if some of my tax dollars go to help people out when they're dealing with emergencies. But what is apparent here is this program has moved from being a stopgap measure, emergency measure, to almost a lifestyle. You're right. We know from uh, government data that two out of five able-bodied adults have been on the program eight years or more. And that's really quite incredible. You know, at that point, it's no longer a safety net. It's become a lifestyle, a hammock. And it's hurting everyone else who we want to help, who are truly needy, who can't stand for themselves. 
you know, the food stamp program really got started as a way to help uh, the most vulnerable amongst us, the elderly, the medically frail, uh, poor children. Uh, but it's become something very different, so much so that we have near record levels of able-bodied adults enrolled on the program, many of whom are not working at all. And when I say able-bodied adults, it's really important to define this. These are people, um, not kids, not seniors, 18 to 49, who are of sound mind and sound body, who doctors and therapists have said are fit and ready to work. And yet there's a, a large number across the country who are not working. So what the Farm Bill conversation is about right now is making sure that the program is set up in such a way that able-bodied adults are encouraged to work, train, or volunteer to maintain access to the program. So this distinction really essentially is between those who can't work versus those who simply won't work because they choose not to. Exactly. Um, No one is asking anyone who is unable to work, to work, train, or volunteer. It's people who are of sound mind and body who can be working and should be working. And it's really also important to define what is work. Uh, The standard is part-time, 20 hours a week, and it's work, train, or volunteer. So we have a near record number of open jobs right now. There's never been a better time to go look for work. But you can also meet the standard by training in a skills program, uh, educational program, or by simply volunteering. For example, putting in 20 hours at a local food bank or a library or a park. So whether it's through volunteering, education, or working, there are many ways to meet this standard. And again, it seems as if we're making a clear distinction between someone who is elderly, somebody who is disabled, who was incapable of working and therefore needs this to help supplement maybe their their, their SSI insurance, whatever the case might be, um, versus somebody who, <coughs> pardon me again, has the physical capability of working, but for whatever reason uh, choose not to, maybe has uh, duped the system and has falsely been receiving uh, disability payments and decided now to kind of work the system, so to speak. Uh, And I guess that also takes us back full circle to the important question, and that is, what about the application of of means testing here? We know that there can be those that are employed and there there can be those that are employed, but they're really more technically underemployed. I mean, for example, uh, the medium household income in America now is uh, most recently just over $61,000 a year. And if you're in Tuscaloosa, Alabama with a family of four, you're probably doing okay. That same family of four in Palo Alto, California is barely scraping by. So does this proposal before Congress uh, include some degree of means testing so that we're not sort of trying to apply one version of this all across the country where the cost of living varies from area to area and state to state? Yeah, that's a really great question. With the food stamp program, there's supposed to be two eligibility tests uh, when it comes down to it, income as well as assets. And what we've seen in the food stamp program is that states have, over the years, um, used a loophole to set their own eligibility limits, and it really has no coordination with cost of living. Similarly, um, some states have changed their asset test, so much so that they've done away with the asset test, so you could be a relatively uh, low-income individuals that have a lot of assets, more seven figures in the bank, for example, and still be able to get on the food stamps. So across the country, we have this kind of odd patchwork that doesn't make a lot of sense. And so what the House Farm Bill is trying to do right now is 
try to have some more um, uniform standards uh, so that we don't have this patchwork. So, for example, right now, um, if you are in the state of Wisconsin, there's a work requirement. But if you go south just a little bit into Illinois, there's no work requirement right now. And so what they're trying to do is um, come up with a more reasonable application across the country. So it is fair because, again, this is a program that's paid for with federal tax dollars. And so what one state does really impacts all of us because we're all paying for it. And while certainly the states have influenced the application of this and and requirements um, varying from state to state, as you point out, it's federal tax dollars. And so to create a federal standard that takes into consideration cost of living from area to area uh, as as part of what goes into the means testing makes perfect sense. Again, you you may not need food stamps if you're making fifty or sixty grand a year, or a family of four in uh, in Alabama. But that same amount of money in California is going to get you hardly anything, and certainly not going to make a house payment, uh, let alone barely be able to keep your head on making a, a payment to rent an apartment. Uh, this, of course, this uh, part of a farm bill reform that has uh, been before Congress. How soon before we can expect another serious? Look at this in a possible vote. Well, it could be a matter of days. Uh, the House has passed their version of the farm bill, which included some pretty important work requirement reforms as well as anti-fraud measures. For example, so someone could not easily apply for food stamps in a number of states and try to collect from many different sources, but rather creates a, a national database, uh, a clearinghouse, so that uh, if someone applies in California, they can't also apply in Nevada without uh, having their their application flagged. But the Senate version of the Farm Bill um, did next to nothing, really, quite frankly. They left the current system that's very broken in place with its patchwork uh, standards and um, uh, loopholes that have been created. So the Senate and House negotiators are now talking. They're supposed to pass the Farm Bill by the end of September, so we're really in the thick of things. But at this point, the Senate has uh, sent an indication that they're not interested in improving or reforming the program. Um, and so they're uh, pretty stubborn at this point. The House has also said we're not going to, you know, spend hundreds of billions of dollars again over the coming years on a program that is fundamentally in need of a desperate reform. So it's kind of a, a to-be-determined to moment um, in terms of what will happen. I think there's room for some compromise here to make some good and necessary changes in doing right by people who depend on the program as well as those who pay for them. Uh, but we'll see what comes out of Washington, D.C. And certainly a good opportunity here in California to reach out to both uh, Camilla Harris and to Diane Feinstein and say, hey, get on board with the House version of this farm bill that will deal with reforms related to food stamps, address the uh, fraud issue, and uh, bring a sense of level-headedness back to this portion of the welfare bill. I mean, certainly, again, people that need it, we want to make sure they're not denied it. We just want to make sure that they're also equally motivated to go out and to to be as self-reliant as is humanly possible. Our thanks to Christina Rasmussen, Vice President of Federal Affairs at the Foundation for Government Accountability, for that update. More information available on the web at the FGA, think Foundation, Government Accountability, the FGA.org. All right, we're going to get you updated here on Traffic 519, the latest with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, if the issue of welfare and food stamp reform doesn't go hand in hand with uh, 
medical and health care reform in, in America today. I don't know two better topics that uh, would certainly fit hand in glove as these do. And of course, we've been at this business for the longest time. And the battles over Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act and whether it would be repealed and who would repeal it and why would they repeal it and how would they repeal it, on and on it goes. And as we know, um, this administration and a number of members of Congress wrote into office promising that they were going to do a complete redo on this. So far, other than the aspect of Obamacare that compels you to buy the insurance, other than a revision in that, not really much has changed. And many argue that the uh, big ship turns slowly. And while that's certainly true, uh, meanwhile, of course, we know that this continues to under-deliver and over-promise and when it should be just the other way around. So what of the more recent calls for so-called nationalized, socialized, or single-payer medicine and health care. Is it really all that it's cracked up to be? Well, we spend some time taking a look at just that topic. Dr. Lee Vliet joins us today. Dr. Vliet is a preventative medicine specialist with medical practices in both Tucson, Arizona, and in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Vliet is also chief medical officer with MedExpert Chile a global medical consulting company based in Santiago, Chile, whose mission is to help lower cost and increase quality of medical care. Certainly we need more of that here in the United States. And Dr. Valid, thanks so much for taking some time to be with us today. Well, you're certainly welcome. I appreciate your addressing this critical topic. Let's talk about this. You know, we seem to just argue back and forth, and the Republicans have one idea, and the Democrats have another idea, and the Social Democrats have another idea. Nobody seems to be able to get together on this, and yet one thing seems to be universally certain, and that is most of the recipients in health care in America today have one complaint or another. Either they don't have very good access to it, or the access that they have to it is limited, or if they have access to it, it's outrageously expensive. There might be a handful of people that have company-sponsored health care insurance that are pretty much happy with what they're getting, but sadly, um, the, the real reforms that even the ACA attempted to do a number of years ago has really fallen short, and a lot of this has helped to drive this call for so-called uh, single-payer or socialized medicine, but of course, uh, you have to wonder, well, would that model even potentially work, given how complex the medical system is in America? Well, I don't think socialized medicine would work well in America at all. I have been in countries where it is the system in place. I've been a patient in a socialized medicine system in London. I've also had my husband critically ill in socialized medicine hospitals in Germany. And trust me, it is extraordinarily difficult to get the right care to get it timely and even to be able to get what's needed to save a life in an acute situation, much less the more elective kinds of surgeries that Americans are used to getting fairly promptly compared to the weights in Canada and the UK and throughout Europe, for example, where the truly socialized medicine systems are in place. But the flip side of that coin is also becoming a problem in the United States, and that is the corporatization of medicine. Socialized medicine is a healthcare system that is run by the government of the country, controlled by the government, 
and the government decides the rationing of services, what they will pay for, what medicines they'll pay for, what surgeries they'll pay for, what they'll pay for doctors, which means it affects the supply of doctors, which in turn affects access for patients. But in the United States, we are seeing, particularly compared to countries like Chile and Malaysia, which have much more of the private sector type of medical care and much less of the bureaucratic layers of cost and delay and, and roadblocks for patients that we have in the United States. I'm really struck by working in Chile for a number of developing medical consulting services that their, their medical costs are first world quality. And in fact, my husband was a patient in the hospital for two weeks in Chile on a life-threatening situation that the doctors here in the U.S. said, don't bring him home, he, he would not survive the trip, and they're doing everything that we could do, and they're doing it faster because they don't have the insurance approvals to jump through that we have to do here. He had phenomenal care. The hospitals had lower infection rates than what is typical in the United States, on average, the, the private hospitals in Santiago, Chile, run around a 1% infection rate. The average for the U.S. is 4.5%. And here in Arizona, most of our hospitals in 2016 were sanctioned by the federal government for failing to meet the infection control guidelines, and they got penalized. So we are dealing with, in the United States, not socialized medicine. We're dealing with too much corporatization, too many layers of bureaucrats, too many layers of big companies in between the doctor and the patient controlling the guidelines for treatment, the medication options that are covered. Then we have the pharmacy benefits managers that are making money, saving the insurance companies money and telling the doctors and the patients what the doctors can't prescribe for the patients and what is not going to be available and making the doctors go through layers of what's called prior authorization. It's an absolute bureaucratic nightmare, and it's causing a lot of problems for patients in delays of getting the services they need and the medications they need, but it's also causing a lot of doctor burnout, which means that we have more doctors leaving practice, and we have shortages in a number of specialties as well as primary care, across the U.S. Well, I even had my own physician here not all that long ago uh, tell me, as we kind of chatted about uh, some of the recent changes in relationship to ACA and uh, how the practice had been impacted, and I was told essentially that uh, my physician spends approximately 50% of the time treating patients and the other 50% of the time, as it was put to me, jumping through hoops, dealing with red tape, and filling out forms. Well, that's exactly right. And what's interesting in Chile, the services, state-of-the-art, first-world, top-quality services were on average 60 to 80% lower cost than in the United States. Wow. They don't have all of these layers of bureaucrats. You can, somebody could go to Chile and have prostate cancer surgery at the same level of state-of-the-art care that's available in cancer centers across the U.S. for 60% of the cost 
in the U.S. And, you know, and, there's something at the end of the day that's virtually criminal about that. And, and, and certainly, as you're suggesting, Dr. Valee, part of the problem here is the number of competing interests between the patients, the doctors, big pharmacies, insurance companies. The one thing that seems to be common with most of these problems here in America today, and it was an issue that 40, 50, 60 years ago, 70 years ago in healthcare in America really didn't exist, and that is the middlemen. Let's talk about that when we come back after a brief timeout. We're visiting today with Dr. Lee Valit. Dr. Valit is a 2014 Ellis Island Medal of Honor recipient, a medicine specialist with medical practices in Tucson, Arizona, and Dallas, Texas, and also, as you're hearing from her experience, chief medical officer for Med Expert Chile, a global medical consulting company based in Santiago. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Dr. Lee Valit as this edition of Lifeline continues. Let's get a quick update here on the Wednesday ride, the latest from Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Competing interest in healthcare. Certainly all of us have experienced it. The doctor recommends a test. The insurance company says no. You're told this is the best medication for you, but the pharmacy won't uh, won't provide it. And on and on the list goes. The, this battle between the patients, the doctors, big pharmaceutical insurance companies. And one thing that seems to kind of be happening here, the big major paradigm shift in healthcare in America over the last 60, uh, 70 years has been the creation of all of these middlemen who all have a major interest in one single thing. And it's not your health. It's your money or that of your insurance company. Dr. Lee Valita is with us. Dr. Valit, we're talking about, of course, this issue that's been uh, promoted here uh, most heavily since the uh, uh, the uh, political campaign of a season ago, and that is this notion of moving to so-called uh, single-payer or socialized medicine. And as we, I think you started to hint to just prior to the break, a lot of the the enormous costs in America when it comes to delivery really comes down to these middlemen kind of putting their, their hands in all of our pockets, doesn't it? Well, they do. It, it, it is a major addition to the cost in the United States. And the thing that I want to point out to your listeners, Craig, it's really important to realize Democrats keep saying that free markets in medicine are broken. No, they're not broken at all. They haven't been allowed to work since 1965 when Medicare the Medicare Act was passed that set up Medicare and medical Medicaid as government-run programs that increasingly have put in more and more restrictions and guidelines and rules and price controls so that we don't have free markets. There's too much regulation in medicine. We've seen what has happened when President Trump has unwound a lot of the regulations that were strangling other sectors of the economy. We see how the economy took off. What people need to know is that we need to dismantle a lot of the regulations that are strangling medical care and the medical sector so that we don't have free markets, need to get the middlemen out of it, and we need to get it back to patients controlling their own money in health savings accounts we need price transparency. You can't call up a hospital and find out how much it's going to cost to get a gallbladder surgery done because it, the price depends on what insurance plan and what contract they have, and they won't tell you ahead of time. Now, you can go 
to a cash pay surgical center like Surgery Center Oklahoma in Tulsa that's run by a colleague of mine and has it's it's total cash pay, there's no insurance, and their prices run about a tenth of what it costs at a regular hospital and yet it's the same quality of care. And we need to get a lot of these middle managers, you know, pharmacy benefits managers are actually getting exempted from the kickback statutes so that they can run this service of charging the pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies to ration or restrict medications that doctors prescribe for patients. And they get paid a percentage of that. And the CEOs of those companies are making millions. Well, not only that, but I also understand that in some cases they, they, they literally muzzle um, both physicians and pharmacists, where sometimes they might come in and you're you're being forced to pay a, a fairly steep copay for a particular medication. All the while, there is a competing medication that is equally if, as effective, if not more so. Maybe even OTC stuff that would work just as well, but they're not allowed to tell you that. Well, there's also listen to this. I have patients that have insurance plans that are charging them. A $40 copay for Synthroid, which is a thyroid medicine, and yet you can go to Walmart or Costco and pay cash for Synthroid without an insurance plan for 25 bucks a month. So they don't, patients don't realize that they could cost shop their medicines and see what their price would be if they paid cash and didn't use their insurance plan and didn't pay the copay. It, it almost that, seems, Dr. Valet, that, that, that the, the part of the issue here is a lack of transparency, as you mentioned a moment ago, and a real, I mean, this is ironic for the United States, but a real lack of, of, of open market competition here, whereas you indicate there are places and people that are saying, hey, you know what, just like in the automotive market, uh, we can build the car cheap and we can then pass pass that savings on to the consumer and allow the consumer to decide what kind of car they wish to buy. How come we can't see greater degrees of competitiveness in health care? Well, it's a lot of these regulations added by the federal government when Medicare and Medicaid went into effect, and it's been piled on by the states. But look at the free market aspect in medicine that is working. For example... Plastic surgery and LASIK, the eye correction surgery the, for people with nearsightedness, for example, if you have LASIK surgery, that's not covered by insurance plans. So what's happened? People have to pay cash for it, and guess what? Over the last 15 years, the price of LASIK eye surgery has dropped. The, I mean, it just dropped from $15,000 to less than 500 So it the market forces work. It works in plastic surgery, too. Cosmetic surgery is all cash pay, and that's very competitive. We need the same types of competition throughout the whole healthcare sector, not just in those elective surgeries. And, and I pulled back from my work in Chile in 2016 when the election went the way it did, and I knew that the, the goal was going to be to repeal Obamacare. I have to say I'm very disappointed that the Republicans, particularly the senator from Arizona who gave the thumbs down as the deciding vote, and he's now deceased, but he really hurt American consumers and patients when he voted 
not to reveal Obamacare, and I'm talking about John McCain, but when uh, the work I was doing in, in Chile was because of the rising cost under the Affordable Care Act, which was anything but affordable, and it certainly didn't protect patients. So that was the motivation for my doing the consulting work and setting up the company there. I decided not to continue that because I knew that with some of the changes in the market that we would see under the Trump administration, I didn't think that was going to be necessary for people to be going out of the country. And I do think we will ultimately get a lot of the changes made. President Trump has made a number of changes on the regulatory side, opened up short-term insurance that the Democrats did away with in 2010. And there are a number of other changes that he's already made that he could make without Congress fully repealing Obamacare. So I think we're headed in the right direction. But consumers have to understand that single-payer socialized medicine is going to be worse than what they've had under Obamacare in terms of delays, limited access, limited specialists, and the government telling you what you can have and what you can't have and what treatment you're going to be eligible for and what you're not going to be eligible for. And most Americans are used to having more freedom than that. So this election in the midterms is critical for people to vote Republican and keep the momentum going and keep the pressure on Congress to make these free market changes that have already happened in other sectors of the economy. And, and certainly encouraging this current Congress and the next one to be a little bit more serious about the job. I mean, there's been so much talk about reform, reform, reform. We, we had it forced down our throats with the passage of ACA a few years ago. We knew that this thing was going to be doomed from the start. We knew it would so shortly and soon implode, which it has, as we've seen more insurance companies pull out of the markets and more providers saying, nope, we just, I'm sorry, we can't, we can't make this work. And so it's almost as if it was set up to fail in the first place, and now we, as patients and taxpayers, are paying the huge price. And so keeping the um, proverbial feet to the fire of Congress critically important. But, you know, one thing ultimately, as Dr. Valit said, we need to all be aware of, and that is that it, if, if you think going to the DMV is a good, enjoyable, productive experience, then just imagine a version of the DMV running your health care. And that will tell you everything you need to know about so-called centralized or socialized Healthcare. Our thanks to Dr. Lee Valit for being with us today. More information available on the web at herplace.com. H-E-R-P-L-A-C-E, herplace.com. All right, we're here at 546. Look at traffic now, the latest with Michael Bennett. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, when you think about your relationship with others... So much of how we view and see and relate and interconnect with others is based on the way that we view, relate, and understand God. And so much of the way we do that is based on our thought process, the way we we mentally construct our image of God, who we perceive him to be. And to a large effect, as my guest asserts tonight, the way we view God also has a profound impact on our physical, mental, and 
obviously spiritual health. How do we go about how do we go about better understanding the relationship between the way we view God or think of God and the way it impacts so many parts of our life? Well, he tackles this very topic inside the pages of a new book called The God-Shaped Brain. Now, Dr. Tim Jennings is a board-certified Christian psychiatrist and master psychopharmacologist, voted one of America's top psychiatrists by Consumer Research Council for 2008, 10, and 11. And he is on the board of Southern Pacific Association and is in private practice in Tennessee. Joins us now to talk about the findings inside the pages of this new work, The God-Shaped Brain. And Dr. Jennings, a delight to have you on the program. Thank you. It's a delight, delight now, to be here. Ironically, Scripture says so much about this topic, and we tend to kind of just kind of gloss over it, don't we? I mean, in the, in the sense that we're told about bringing our thoughts into captivity. Um, we, we understand a lot about uh, the uh, the idea that we see, for example, in Philippians 4, 8, that whatever, the things that we think about. And so if that's true in so many ways, why is it that seemingly a lot of us, maybe not all, but, but many within the church, kind of had pretty significantly faulty thinking about God? Yeah, and, and that's a great point. I, I think the point you're making is, is great on several levels. One, science, brain science, is actually affirming uh, things that the Bible has said for thousands of years. And that's exciting to be able to, to look at the brain science, the brain research, and say, wow, the Bible was right 2,000 years ago. Without any CAT scans or MRIs or, or neurobiology, it was still right. Um, so why do people struggle with distorted ideas? Um, well, I think it has to do a lot with uh, innocent and inadvertent ideas that slowly uh, encroach over time as we take our human ideas and put them back on the Bible, rather than letting the Bible reveal itself to us. We hear things uh, such as um, folks that are out there in the world of, uh, of motivational speakers that talk about mind over matter, things of this sort. I mean, most definitely, science has found a very strong connection between the way we think or view things and our health, hasn't it? Absolutely, and everybody has probably heard of something called the placebo effect, and the idea that uh, if you get a uh, sugar pill but you believe it's a pain pill, that uh, you not only get pain relief, but brain science has now shown that if you believe you're getting a pain pill, your brain will actually release uh, chemicals called endorphins and keflins, which are brain-produced opiates or painkillers. So you actually get physiological brain change if you believe you're getting a pain pill. But if you are told you're getting a sugar pill and, uh, and uh, no longer believe you're getting a pain pill, the brain does not release the endorphins and enkephalins, so you don't get the pain relief. So something as simple as that, uh, when we have a change in belief about what's happening, there's physiological consequences that are different depending on what we believe. Medical science certainly understands this. I mean, for example, my mother, who's been a cancer patient for almost a decade now, when she was first under treatment by her oncologist, uh, encouraged her that very much how she viewed this particular battle with cancer, what her anticipated desire was in terms of the outcome, and her her mental viewpoint on the ability to, to get through all of this, meaning the chemotherapy, the surgery, so on and so forth, would play a major role on whether or not she was going to be able to beat this disease or not. And I'm pleased to report that in the decade, uh, her, her mental viewpoint on all of this has been very good, very positive, and she's managed to um, be into full remission four times over in the last decade. So having said that, clearly those of you in the, the medical arena have seen a connection between the impact that our thinking has on our physical well-being. Why is it that we've kind of perhaps within the church 
lost the understanding or maybe failed to in the first place recognize the understanding that there's also a very strong impact between our relationship with Christ or the viewpoints that we have on God uh, based on maybe the, the impressions that we had as a child and the way we think of God. You know, I think something happened in uh, uh, several hundred years after Christ where the idea of God being the builder, creator, who constructed his universe to operate on design parameters or protocols, laws of health, laws of gravity, these, these construction protocols that nature operates on being God's law, that instead an idea that God was like a, a Roman emperor, a dictator, imposing arbitrary law, human-type law, really came into the uh, Christian thought process and seeing changed, and you, you can see that history where in the early church was very self-sacrificial, but then suddenly the church went on the crusades, and we had the Inquisition, and we would burn people at the stakes uh, for not believing the way. So methodology changed because this construct of God's law changed from protocols upon which life was built to impose rules you better keep or else. Mm. And so with all of this, it has created, uh, to many degrees, passed down through the millennia, uh, in some camps, a distorted God construct, hasn't it, that, that as a result has subsequently significantly impacted everything from our, our physical well-being, mental well-being, as we mentioned a moment ago, to even our spiritual health as well as relationships? Absolutely. And what's, uh, what's uh, striking is that m- most Christians wouldn't um, dispute this idea if they're talking about a non-Christian, somebody in a Wiccan camp wor- worshiping, you know, white witchcraft, and these they would say, oh yeah, that's going to be that. What's striking, though, is that within Christianity, within any, any individual church group, you can go into a group of Christians, and you can find some that worship a God of love who's benevolent and kind, as Jesus revealed them, but you can find some that are worshiping an authoritarian or punitive or distant or punishing God, and and all within Christianity. And what we discovered is that viewpoint within the same religion actually has a different impact on how your brain functions and, and, and actually structurally changes the brain and ultimately your physical health. Right. From your position as a physician, where did you begin research into this arena to begin sort of connecting the dots, so to speak? Uh, of the connection between whether or not we have a healthy or a faulty and distorted, thus, uh, God construct in our minds, and then the ultimate impact that it has on not only, in, in many respects, I guess, self-defeating behaviors and toxic relationships, but, but the aspects in which it touches every part of life. Well, I think it really started for me in my residency. When I started my psychiatric residency, um, I guess more than 20 years ago now, I... Um, was challenged by my faculty, who by and large didn't believe in God and kind of looked like historic psychiatrists often have down on those who do look on God as somehow being un- do believe in God as somehow being unenlightened in some way, and so they really challenged us, and we had to read the theorists like Freud and Jung and Adler and and many of the, the theorists who don't have a great God concept. And uh, these ideas were very challenging for me, and I had the premise that, okay, I believe God is real. If he is real, then the evidence should support that. His, his, we should be able to find evidences that, that sustain God's Word and not have to simply say, well, I believe, and I'm, I'm just not going to look at any, any evidence or facts. And, uh, and so I started research 20 years ago into this to, to identify the protocols, the evidences that were there, and it's been fantastic and, and rewarding and, and validating to, to discover that the Christian viewpoint is much more um, scientific, much more evidence-based, much more reliable than a viewpoint that excludes God. Have you had a chance to see this play out in the, um, in the patient relationship 
in the sense that you've been able to notice differences in a patient's ability to respond to treatment, uh, for example, uh, take two identical, generally identical sets of of uh, symptoms and uh, patients of about the same health condition, age, weight, et cetera, et cetera, find one who has a strong, positive viewpoint uh, on God and on life, and then one who does not, and then be able to play this out at all in any even remotely scientific fashion to see the end results of, of the treatment process for those patients? Well, it, it, yes, and it even is a little more subtle than you would suggest, believe in God or not believe in God. How about one that believes in a God of love, who is self-sacrificial and beneficent, and one who believes in a judgmental punishing God, and one believes God is, is cares for them and wants to deliver them, and one believes God is actually doing this to them. Mm. See, that is even more striking. When people, and I've had patients come see me, and I talk about a young lady in the very beginning of my book who was quite depressed and distraught because she wasn't able to have children, and she was distraught because her pastor told her it was her fault because when she was an adolescent, she had gotten pregnant, had an abortion, and her pastor told her God was punishing her, and she would never be able to have children because of that. Mm. So this viewpoint of an angry, chastising God that is punishing her for past sins or mistakes, I mean, my goodness, you can see the manner in which that could impact every level of one's relationship with Christ and ultimately the way you, your, your belief system works. Yes, and, and, and neurobiologically, when you have those beliefs, it actually fires the brain's fear circuitry called the amygdala, which causes in your body the activation of your immune system, which kicks up inflammatory factors. And this chronic activation, if this continues, actually results in uh, increasing risk of obesity, diabetes, high cholesterol, heart attacks, strokes. It reacts on the brain, increasing your risk of depression. I mean, this is very damaging to the, to the physiology to have chron- chronic fear and anxiety going, whereas if you come back to a knowledge of God as a God of love, when we fire the brain's love circuits, which is called the anterior of the cortex, they actually calm or shut down the fear circuitry. So just as the Bible teaches, perfect love casts out all fear. Neurobiologically, that's actually true. Mm, I want to go deeper on this, Doctor. You've just piqued my curiosity here. We see a connection between anxiety and fear, the way the patient reacts. And we all know what that's like. I mean, you're, you're dealing with a situation maybe in your financial life or at home or at work, and you're filled with fear and anxiety, and you're on edge constantly, and the bile's just right up there, and, and, and it seems like everything that you touch and come in contact with goes wrong, and it doesn't go your way, and it doesn't feel good, and you just don't, you just have that tremendously unsettling feeling about everything. I wonder how much of that can directly be correlated to your viewpoint or understanding of very God himself. We're exploring that equation, a look at the God-shaped brain, how changing your view of God transforms your life, written by Dr. Timothy Jennings. He's with us tonight. We're going to get back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. Get you an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.